When this country started, it was started on the fact that anyone could go and argue for themselves because there weren't that many lawyers in the country. So people would go to court and that's where pro se came from. You're allowed to argue your case. Number one thing, I want everyone listening to this, if you are in foreclosure or you even think that you're gonna have to battle, you go out and you buy yourself the rules of civil procedure for whatever jurisdiction yeah. you're in. You need that, that is your Bible. Anybody can get it. In a world of elite criminals, only people of elite character can protect our system. This is the new Untouchables. Welcome, everybody. This is Steve with the new Untouchables, Patrick Lovell, my co-host, and we are into episode three of season two, and we have just learned so much. We've watched the California elite be predated upon by this fraud, and we've watched the fraud occur in the area of Maryland, in particular Prince George's County. We've seen Olympic gold medalists be defrauded. And we have seen people who dotted their I's and crossed their T's and every step along the way, literal rule followers. This next episode is going to be building upon everything that we've learned. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Patrick to be able to introduce our guests. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. And these two people are genuinely, I think, some of the most important prescient people and experts of what's taking shape in the courts that exists in this country. And both of their journeys to this point are quite extraordinary. So I've been in contact with Paris Faye for some time. Paris Faye is a paralegal out of the state of Florida. She had worked in the industry, the legal profession, for her entire career. She comes from a criminology background, and she's always believed in the law, in the dignity of the law. And that's a great starting point to come to the realization of what we've been exploring in these particular episodes. Doug Boggs is a particular, there's really no words I can do to express what I believe Doug Boggs has been able to do. Doug Boggs, I like to refer to as kind of a Renaissance guy. He's an entrepreneur like a lot of other great Americans, a developer building houses in the state of Texas and California. He took a great deal of understanding of detail, as you know yourself, Steve, being the engineer that you are as well as a sound mixer and engineer. He's worked with great acts in the state of California. He's an artist at the same time with being a business guy. So he comes from that sort of background, right? So like a lot of us in the run-up to the great financial crisis, we were making money. I was making quite a bit of money at the time, being involved with the problem that I didn't even realize was a problem. But suddenly this thing came to a screeching halt. It reminds me of that movie, you've seen it a million times, where someone hits the brakes and somebody kisses the windshield, right? In this case, we all went through the windshield and then got run over by the freaking semi and then dragged down the street. And then it got worse from there. That was just the beginning. And in the case of Doug, he's a can-do guy. And so he ends up being a pro se guy. And the reason why I wanted to bring him and Paris together is because he did insane research to save his own house. And he'll go into detail on what that's all about. But it led him to understanding all of the laws. And this is extremely complicated stuff particularly in the state of California, all of the states have different rules of foreclosure process based on being judicial or non-judicial. There's all of these ins and outs, but we know now, right, we've established the fraud pipeline that created this madness and you can't transmute lead into gold. So if you've got a whole bunch of dirty securities predicated on mortgage loans, right, that go into blowing up the world company and dirty securities, you can't suddenly manifest stuff that has improper documentation, and all of this other stuff that goes into this complicated securitization process that gets really insane and have legal standing. The only person who's ever done a piece of work on this in a way that some in this space might have understood what was going on was a gentleman by the name of David Dan who wrote a book called Chain of Title. But since then, not much, right? Len Sismoniak got the attention of 60 Minutes back before the National Mortgage Settlement when she revealed what was happening in the robo-signing problem. But that was kind of here and there and then just disappeared. The system itself was able to collapse or the media never had any intent to run with the story in a way that we have with the con. And Doug Boggs had to, by his own grit and determination, 
literally rewire his brain, spend his entire freaking time trying to understand the system. And he did. And he got all of the details of the rules and the regulations of what was supposed to happen and what didn't happen in the courts. And he wrote a book called Quantum of Justice, which he's just about to reveal to the American people. But on top of our previous episodes, what Paris and Doug are going to be able to show to us is the details of what is supposed to happen in the courts and what actually happens in the courts. And Paris actually is in the midst of a monumental case that she'll bring full circle. But I think I'm going to start, Paris, with Doug, just because I want to set the tone of what caused you to go down this path, Doug. And if you can give us a sense of what it is that you had to explore and expose to get to the point of being able to write this book, Quantum of Justice. Yeah, Patrick, thanks. And Steve, thanks for having me on. It was in 2010, December 31. And there's actually reasons for that that I don't want to get into because it takes us back through another rabbit hole that we don't want to go down. But at the end of 2010, I received the first foreclosure documents. Now, prior to that, my wife at the time and I had been for about almost two years talking to Wells Fargo saying that there's going to be a day coming up at some point because of what was taking place in the economy that we would not be able to pay our mortgage. In 2008, I had 20 properties across the United States and I was building 18 houses in Texas and I had construction projects in California. So I was moving all over the place and the wheels were in motion with the projects that I had in Texas. You can't just stop as much as the world collapsed and I would have liked to. So there was a momentum that was moving forward. And so we were trying to talk to the bank and let them know that we were willing to try to figure something out before chaos hit. And so we were in and out of, as we were hearing on the other show, the previous show, we were in and out of HAMP, TARP, and all the other programs that both presidents from both parties put together. And every time the paperwork got lost, et cetera, it's the same old story. You've heard it all. So we were current on our mortgage. So I'd lost everything else because of the debacle and everything imploded. But I maintained my house that I built in Oakland, California. So we had been trying to call and try to figure that out because I hadn't worked for about two years being in real estate development and construction business. Everything was done. So as we were trying to talk about that, so the bank finally said, you know, look, we can't help you until you literally stop paying your mortgage. So stop paying your mortgage and then we'll be able to help. Well, that's the old adage that you trust the bank because they have all your money, but got to trust somebody. So we did. We finally stopped paying the mortgage in November of 2010. And in December of 2010, we started being foreclosed on. And I found that interesting because there's a process of foreclosure in California where there's a 90 day period for us to put our ducks in a row prior to us getting that paperwork to getting foreclosed on. And so because of all of that, I was like, well, this just doesn't seem right. So as we opened up the very first documents and it was saying, the banks checked a specific box on one of the documents. There's three documents that come in, in that notice. And they marked a box that said they tried everything they could to be in contact with us and talk to us about this process and they could not reach us. Now, we'd been on the phone with them every day for the last couple of years. So... There's absolutely no way they can mark the box that says they couldn't contact us and therefore they're moving forward with foreclosure. And so I started just thinking, well, none of this makes any sense since paper number one. And as things started to unfold, the only way to stop this in a non-judicial foreclosure, what happens is the banks are presumed to be right. And this happens because in a non-judicial foreclosure, you're supposed to have an independent trustee in the middle of all this. I didn't know all of this at the time. I had an inkling because I'd been involved in real estate for a long time, but none of it made any sense. So as I started to read and whatnot, in the non-judicial process, there's an independent party in the middle, and that's called the trustee. 
they're supposed to make sure that everything is correct and being able to protect the title from a bank doing harm to my title, so to speak. And they are also supposed to protect the bank and make sure that I pay the bill. That's their job. And obviously they weren't doing their job because we were getting fraudulent paperwork on moment one. So the only retribution a homeowner has in a non-judicial state is to literally file a lawsuit against the bank because the trustee in the process is considered the court. So there's this presumption of correctness that all of the paperwork that's being filed into the county records is correct. And so now, I don't want to put the cart before the horse of the story, but if you have a fraudulent or illegal trustee, then the court is illegal and fraudulent on its face. So we didn't know any of this yet, but you see the uphill battle that is beginning to develop moment number one. So the only way through this was to file a lawsuit. I knew nothing about that. I was a contractor. I made contracts and things. And being out of work for the last couple of years, I filed a lawsuit and didn't have money for a lawyer. So the only way to do that was to be my own lawyer. That's how I fell into the whole pro se scenario. I never thought I would find myself in that position. But here I was suing one of the largest corporations in the world, certainly in the country, out of the skin of my pants. It was ridiculous. Very stressful. And so you have to learn the process. And for what I also, as we move forward, I wanted to try and get some assistance. And so I tried to find a paralegal because that would be a lot less expensive than finding an attorney to take the case. And none of them would anyway. Or if they would, it would end in a week and you'd lose. But that's beside the point, a whole nother discussion. So I made 40 different phone calls. And every time I talked to a paralegal, they said, oh, I can't help you because there's something that says you have to work with a lawyer first. That way the paralegal can then work with you which didn't make sense to me. So everyone said no. Everyone kept saying no. And I started to feel like the colonel, the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy who had to just keep knocking and knocking, right? And after 40 different phone calls, I finally reached a paralegal. She was retired and she'd been a retired legal professor at a local college. And she said, I will help you. And so we went to her office and started to outline a lawsuit and we had no idea what direction we were going. We were shooting blanks. But based on what the paperwork was coming through, we started to define some sort of an argument. It didn't have a whole lot of legs, but the benefit to that is that I was pro se. And if it doesn't have a whole lot of legs, but you're filing things and trying, the law states that a pro se is given the benefit of the doubt that they're an idiot. <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. So <laughs> you're supposed to get some extra chances and things like that. Well, the benefit to that was we got to learn very quickly the rules of law. And in order to teach myself how to go through this process, I was just reading lawsuits after lawsuits, major lawsuits, to try and see how things were structured and to try to see how I could put the paperwork together because I didn't know how to do any of this. And so I would copy and paste like a billion dollar lawsuit from BMW and yada yada or whatever, and just try to use what seemed to be successful and put my words into it. And that's how I was thrown into the deep end of the lion's den of law. And over time, we started to get the legs because we started to do, as Patrick was saying, I'm a research junkie and I've read everything that I could get my hands on. And I started to learn about the process of California foreclosure law. And so we started to define our argument between the first complaint and then the first and second amended complaint, et cetera, et cetera. After give or take about four years of the lawsuit, we were bounced in between state court. We were bounced up to federal court. We were bounced back to state court. All of those have different rules. During that time, I don't know this for a fact, but you get those feelings in your stomach of what's true. 
And all of a sudden I was being audited by the IRS for a major audit from the year 2007. The IRS came at me. So now I was in IRS court, federal court, and state court all at the same time fighting whoever I could. So all I did all day long was work on one lawsuit, then the next lawsuit, then the next lawsuit. And I'm happy to say I beat the IRS, but that's beside the point. But you go through the process and they just throw everything they can at you to beat you down. And a lot of times from my experience and from what I've seen, the judges will try and end it quickly based on some error that a pro se will have. And we were pretty diligent in the courtroom. We had a lot of oral arguments as well. It's life in the fast lane of learning law and very challenging times to try and keep a house and a marriage and all of those dynamics of life together. I want to interject because you being a person that has built homes and you obviously had some business acumen, been used to working in contracts, moving and shaking too, which is not something people are born with. Most people, in fact, I would say would be so intimidated by what you were facing that they would just give up instantly, which is probably what most of the millions of other Americans who had this similar situation, they ended up doing as well. So I want our listeners to understand that while you were gregarious, you're also exceptional in the sense that you had the ability, you had the mental acumen, you had been used to dealing in contractual scenarios that would allow you to understand perhaps some of what to do. And the fact of the matter is you're a businessman. And so you had a different angle at which you approached this. I think it's important that everybody understands that just because you did these things and you're struggling still, The average person that is still suffering to this day, who has all the horror stories, just no one's supporting them, this is real, and this is happening right now, and that, quite frankly, the law shouldn't be this hard. We shouldn't have to do what you did for someone to get justice. Yeah, that's very true. Law shouldn't be this hard. When this country started, it was started on the fact that anyone could go and argue for themselves because there weren't that many lawyers in the country. So people would go to court and that's where pro se came from. You're allowed to argue your case and anyone can do that. But what we've gotten into in the world of law, from my experience, is there's so many little intricacies of just filing a document all these little intricacies that if you do one of those wrong, it can be thrown out. Now, if I had hired a lawyer and made some of the errors that I made as a pro se, and I've seen some lawyers paperwork that gets submitted and everything is incorrect. And it was against me. Everything in their filing was incorrect yet. They stayed in the game. But if I would have done that, I'd be out. You'd be on the street. Yep. Yeah. So it's not fair for sure, because it's a good old boys club. And so they look out for themselves. They play golf together and whatnot. It's the game. I'm not in that game. I'm building houses on the golf course where they play golf together. So it was a different game for me. But one of the arguments that I ended up getting involved in when I get into the third amended complaint was a friend of mine who was helping me with my research. He said, you know, What you're dealing with is we needed to find out how a true deed of trust, because part of my complaint was the trustee is faulty and we're filing faulty paperwork. And when all this was taking place, I was like, how does this happen? How do you do that? And part of my argument in order to set up the argument was you have to show a valid deed of trust and what that looks like. Because according to the rule of law, my paperwork wasn't set up correctly by how the rule of law says it's supposed to be set up. Okay. We'll leave it vague. It's in the book, Quantum of Justice, which is coming out next week. It's in production right now, but I needed to find a true deed of trust document with all of the people in the right place, all of the names in the right place, all the stuff, the way the law says that document is supposed to be structured. 
So I'm into this lawsuit now about two and a half years. And that was now the new premise. Well, mine wasn't constructed correctly. And so I needed to find that. So I went down to the county records every day for weeks and looked through thousands and thousands of documents. And I just kept going back a week, back a week, back a week, any document. I just needed one that was legit so I could say to the court, this is what a real document is supposed to look like. And this is what we have. So it's fraudulent on its face, so to speak. So I ended up going through the county records back 20 years. I didn't find a legitimate document that I was looking to submit to the court. (laughs) I had to go back 20 years and I went back to 1997 in December and I found a document that was legit. And then I went a little bit farther back in 97. These are random documents. It didn't matter. I just needed to find them legit. And so then I find legit all over the place in 97. But in January 1, 1998, everything changed. That's why I had to go that far back. And so I was like, well, none of this makes sense, right? So then I had to try and figure out, well, what happened on January 1, 1998 that makes all of this go to shit. So now I had to do my research from the legislative level to try to see what changed that allowed this to change and all of these documents could now be crap. So that took some more research. And what it brought me to was California Senate Bill 1638. And this is why I wrote the book. Because what I found out is that since that bill was passed in 1996 and it became effective January 1, 1998. And what that bill says is that the banks have the right to replace the trustee at will. And the problem with that is that means the banks own the trustee and they are no longer an independent party. Back in 1978, there was a Garfinkel versus Superior Court of Contra Costa County. That was in 1978. And they specifically said that the trustee in the transaction is to be an independent third party and held at arm's length. And the reason for this is because the trustee is put in place for the court. They are the court. They have to be independent. But now there was one line that changed in the law. And in 1998, all that changed. So I petitioned the state of California and I asked for all the paperwork on how that law was written and how it was defined and how it got to be where it was. And I was told, well, geez, that's kind of weird. No one's ever asked for this ever since it was written. And they blew the dust off the file and photocopied everything. And they sent me 120 some odd pages of all the notes from the state legislation that made California Senate Bill 1638 in 1996. And what was interesting is that the senator that wrote the bill included very detailed information that says, out of all of this that I'm saying, we still need to abide by California Civil Code 2924, which is the power of sale clause, which is the foreclosure process. And it was going to be signed unanimously by everyone because it was worded right. However, the people that were putting this together, the Mortgage Brokers Association of California, came in at the 11 o'clock hour and rewrote what the senator's bill was going to stay. And they turned it into one sentence. And it said the bank has the power to substitute the trustee at will. Boom. Didn't have to say they have to follow California law, anything. They changed everything. And so now the banks own the trustee. It's no longer neutral. It's no longer neutral. Doug is right. They set this law to steal our homes because in my work, I find when I dig down deep, I have found four, now possibly five, theft rings. And they include the trustee, they include the foreclosing attorneys, and they include the auction house and the buyer. I am able to connect all of those parties together. But you have to dig really, really deep. That's why I created my fact report is to really dig down deep and find out where the criminals live. And the foreclosing attorneys, if you notice, they will file a notice of substitution of trustee 
just before they file a foreclosure, substituting themselves as the trustee. And no one ever questions it. They just go, okay. Or the company that they put in, you don't know until you dig down deep that the attorneys, the managing partners, own the trustee company. You just have yeah. no idea. Let me set the table for the audience. Okay, so Paris, just off the top, give us just a brief overview of your background as a paralegal. And then ultimately, you would have been working at a foreclosure mill. Can you explain to us what a foreclosure mill is and what you discovered? Okay, a foreclosure mill is just that. It's just a mill. It's just a bunch of people pushing paper really fast. And at the time, I only thought it was just a single law firm here in Tampa. It wasn't until I started doing this work that I found out it's one of the largest foreclosure mills in the country. Anything with Shapiro in the first name is probably connected to the Logs Network and this firm that I worked for. So I came in, I was the only paralegal out of the bunch. Most everyone else worked for that industry the entire time for servicers or for foreclosure attorneys. And you walk in in the morning and they hand you a piece of paper with a bunch of account numbers on it. And you have to pull up the account number, put the package together, give it to the foreclosing attorney so he can attach a form complaint. And they're all formatted. So I was getting in trouble for not keeping my numbers up because everything is about numbers. Wait a second. Explain what that means. Numbers for what? They were account numbers. So we were tagged into... And I don't remember because I wasn't there very long after they asked me to do something that was highly illegal. They were just account numbers. So you would go up and you would pull up the account number in the program that they had created. And I'm pretty sure the logs network, if you look it up, belongs to Shapiro. And you would pull it up and then you would pull up the number with the bank. And the bank and or servicers and or debt collectors would send you all the documents, a copy of the note, the secured instrument, which is the deed of trust and or mortgage and all the assignments. So my job was to make sure that I had all the proper parts to show the chain of lien ownership and to divert just a little bit. But wait a second, that they created, that they created in the aftermath, right? I didn't know that at the time. All I know is I'm collecting these documents and I have to give it to the foreclosure attorney, okay? So I would get in trouble because I wasn't putting my packages together enough because I didn't have all the documents. I'm like, I can't give the attorney and foreclose in this party's name if I don't have all the proper assignments because it's not the originator. And I was told, you have 48 hours to get it. And if you don't get it, I am this department and they'll make one up for you. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, curious and okay. So I went and I am the lady and told her what I needed. She said, okay, I'll let you know when I have it. I'm like, okay. So puzzles, you know, when you have something that you know is wrong, but they're doing it like normal business. You're going, what the hell? So she IM'd me. I went upstairs. She wasn't even looking at me. She was just like typing and then just passed it off to me. Is that here? Go down there and she'll notarize it. And I'm holding it going, this is illegal. We can't do this. And I got dismissed. So I went down, got it notarized, went back down to my desk, totally stunned because I come from law firms. I'm a paralegal. I know what's the right thing to do, but they're going to write me up again if I don't get this done, right? So put it together, walk into the attorney, and my cover my own ass thing is always to tell the attorney, say, listen, they told me to put this assignment here for you, but they created the assignment. And he's like, okay, put it down over there on the stack and go get me another one. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> So it was disheartening. And the more it sank in as what was going on. And again, I had no idea this was going on on national level. I just knew this particular law firm was committing fraud. So I went home and I thought about it and I cried because somebody was going to possibly lose their home because I didn't stand up and say, you can't do this. I'm not going to do this. If you don't have the right paperwork, sorry about your luck. Figure out another way to foreclose on it because I'm not going to do it. But I did it. I felt horrible. The next day I went to work and I swear to you, sat in my car, cried, was walking out and just looked to the heavens and said, God, please, I can't do this. You got to protect me and my kids. I don't have another job. I walked in, sat down, my stomach turned and I looked at the lady that was sitting next to me. I told her, I said, you're committing fraud. Do you not understand that? When the shit hits the fan, we are the ones that are going to get in trouble. And she's like, yeah, but you know, you need this job, you know, 
I was in the middle of a really bad divorce. And I said, dude, I can't do this. And I picked up my stuff and where are you going? I said, I'm out. You guys are doing illegal shit here, man. <laughs> and I left. So that was an introduction. Right. And that's the perfect introduction because what we discovered in Banking the Con in this new Untouchables broadcast, and here you guys are, again, on the ground level. This is the flip side of what we showed, Steve, in series one, right? You've got the highest level executive CEOs, C-suite type people, Richard Bowen, Michael Winston, so on and so forth, all the way through the FBI, the DOJ, and saying all of this stuff at the highest levels, right? Here's the stuff that's happening in the granular levels, right? And then, of course, what Doug has to go through in the courts. So because of that, and because your belief in the system, Paris, because you're, quite frankly, your natural moral compass, which I know millions of us Americans have, we're not all freaking lying, stealing, and cheating. Not all of us. There's a lot of good people out there. You're one of them. So you discover this massive Florida in California. These two states were probably outside of Arizona, percentage-wise, in Nevada. I could go on and on. Everybody got crushed. But Florida and California particularly, the numbers of foreclosures were insane. They were insane. So right. you start getting into the forensic evidence, Paris. I did by my own case. When I was battling my own case, and like Doug, it's hard to battle everything. I was in the middle of a really bad domestic violence situation, so I wasn't really paying attention at that point. Mine started in 07 was my first foreclosure. It wasn't even with a party. The plaintiff has never been in my recorded records or anything to do with my chain of lien ownership, nothing. So we ended up getting that one dismissed. My second one was being filed by one of the worst foreclosure criminals in the state of Florida, David Stern. David Stern ended up getting closed down. He had horrible robo-signers, and I've been working against him for years in bankruptcy. If you had a foreclosure, David Stern was the attorney. So after I finally got rid of the threat of my life, I finally started to dig in. I was like, okay, now i got to get my house straight. And I was going through the paperwork, and I had called, and it was homecomings. I had called homecomings, and I said, okay. They said, no, U.S. Bank is the owner of your loan. I'm like, Okay, so I called U.S. Bank and they said, we've never even heard. We have no idea what you're talking about. Now I'm looking. Now I'm looking. So I find that my very first assignment of mortgage, who was requested by David Stern, the notary had backdated the document a year before she was even commissioned. It's fraud on its face. Try to find an attorney to help me say that. I couldn't find one. I went to bankruptcy court. I finally ended up filing bankruptcy. And as I'm walking in, the opposing counsel walked in, standing right behind me, whispered in my ear, you're not getting a free house. Oh, well, I whipped around in all my Southern charm and said, neither are you. And we went into court and I never got a chance to say a word. And the judge says, okay, go back to state court. Came back to state court. I finally found an attorney that would fight for me. And he did. My house did sell, but we had it reversed on this document. So long story short, I end up winning, but only by a dismissal. The opposing counsel realized that it was fraud. And if you're an attorney and you come into court and you perpetuate the fraud, it's a felony and you're going to jail and you're losing your license. So she was like, I'm out. <laughs> you know, And she ended up getting sanctioned for it. And they came up with all this crazy stuff because they didn't want to admit on record that it was fraud. Fast forward, my house is out of sale. My house is out of foreclosure. The court put the order in my recorded document. So if you go to look up my chain of title and my chain of lien ownership in the recorder's office, it says a court order saying there's a fraudulent document. I'm like, wow, this is great. Fast forward three years, 2018, October, PHH Morgan decided to recreate a note with now in a launch, so this is the seventh version of my note presented in court as evidence. Within a launch, it's never appeared before, and I am again now fighting for my house on fraudulent documents. You are listening to the New Untouchables a podcast brought to you by a collaboration of the creators of the docuseries The Con and Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. 
please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. And this is happening over and over for years. Many over Americans, and over. Many Americans think this thing ended years ago. They no. don't even know what happened. Here you guys are giving us the details, but this is the system. <laughs> and once you really pull back the layers, you understand who's getting paid by whom and why, because you always got to follow the money. But it's like, once again, and I want to see if you guys can blend this together, Doug and Paris, because we have probably about another 15, 20 minutes before we have to jump because we've got some people waiting and we've been getting logged yet. But the bottom line is, as we all know, we could talk about this stuff for days. And that's why the audience really needs to read your book, uh, Quantum of Justice. But in terms of the fact report, can you talk to us a little bit about what you've done that's, I think, revolutionary, just in terms of the courts? Once you really get into the nitty gritty detail on a very front end kind of basis, you have a process. Can you give us a sense of that, Paris? The fact report I created as a litigation report, it's a hybrid of a chain of lien ownership and chain of title in a litigation report for an attorney. So I go back to the very beginning. From the moment that you buy the house, I start investigating every single document up until the time that you're in court. So the problem with the courts is they assume that where you are right now, you got here legitimately. What I'm finding in the over 350 cases I've done, they started setting up you for failure years prior. I can't even begin to tell you. I have fraudulent satisfactions. I have mortgages that are on property that people didn't even know about. I have one in Hawaii. He thought he had two loans. He had eight more that he didn't even know he had. And we found out through the fact report, through my process, that the mortgage that was recorded was fraudulent because it didn't match what was in the closing agent's office. So they had already set him up and they stole money from his property eight times. So the fact report just goes through and shows that there's definitely a conspiracy to commit fraud. It shows all of the wrongdoing by the attorneys. The attorneys are the ones that are falsifying the evidence to get their case to fit. And I can't make it any more simple than that. I have several cases that I can pinpoint where the foreclosing attorneys are the ones that are causing the biggest problem. And it's easy for them because there's no stopgap measure. In a non-judicial process, the trustee is the stopgap. Exactly. That That's supposed to be where... You can't do that. So when I had to start doing my research to find that one document that was legit, it was right around in 2012. San Francisco did a study in February of 2012. And so the assessor, the recorder, his name was Phil Tang, and they brought in an investigative firm to look over 382 different mortgages they audited in the city of San Francisco. This was nationwide news. And Akitas was the company that came in. And they found 84% of those 382 different properties that they audited, 84% had clear violations. Okay, that leads me to that question of how does this happen? We now know nationwide that it's chaos, but the question that always got to me is how does this happen? And it's like Patrick and Paris, when we had our phone call the other day, when we talk about trying to save someone's home, that's fine. I wanted my home to be saved. I applaud people that go out to save their home. But what I was looking for, and what Paris is always trying to find as well, I'm sure, is that smoking gun that's going to actually make a difference. Because we can keep going to court. That's what this system is designed for. It's lawyers creating a system to always make money. But if we were to stop gap that, how do we do that? Well, we actually need new legislation that takes out that bullshit legislation that I uncovered. Because what I uncovered was every deed of trust in the state of California since January 1, 1998 is void. You don't have to pay it. Now, for somebody listening in the state of California, go to my website, quantumofjustice.com and sign in because we can put together the world's largest class action lawsuit just on that alone. Because what we're dealing with here is 
a system that is making you borrow for your house on fraudulent paper. Now you need to put your kids through college because you're paying the bank for your house. Now you have to borrow for your kid's college. So you borrow for your kid's college. Now that loan also gets securitized and put in some tranche in a mortgage-backed security, which is bullshit. But the entire process is fraud. And we're borrowing all along the way. But if we knew that that paper was blank, it doesn't mean squat. Would you pay your mortgage? Now you'd have money to go on vacation and pay your kid's college. <laughs> all we're doing is pissing away what we work hard to do. No one's making ends meet except that top one, two, five percent. The wages have stayed stable for the last 20 some odd years. We see all the documentation, you know, and the system is designed for us to be constantly figuring out how to be further in debt. Amen. Amen. When every time you file a document that puts you in debt, I guarantee you from Paris's work, as well as the auditing work that I've done, every document that I've looked at, every single audit that I've ever done, a hundred percent of them are void. Okay. I got to make this point, Steve. Because you're at the cross-section of this, where you talk to the highest level academics, particularly as it relates to MMT. And I'm particularly struck by a macaroni and cheese conversation you have with Nathan Tankus about really what the Federal Reserve is justifying the asset value, this entirety of the system predicated on what you just heard. Smoke and mirrors. What you just heard Paris tell you in a case of a client of hers in Hawaii has literally multi-pledged assets. The paperwork is so whacked, we're predicating value and loans and all of these things at the highest level with trillions of dollars into the system to do what? What these guys are telling us. I think what you see, unfortunately, is a lot of the quote-unquote academics are focused on the idea that you are doing what you say you're doing, and at the end of the day, this is what's happening. They're kind of keeping it academic. It's activists, it's people like the people on the screen right now that are digging into those areas and saying, hey, hey, hey. And unfortunately, the academics give us the blueprint for how the system works so we can see where the different screws are tightened. Supposedly work, how the system supposedly works. That's right. But the reality of it is the system works exactly as it was <laughs> architected to work. Yes. And that's the fact of the matter. And it's funny you brought up the beginning of the nation because it was a bunch of really what it ended up being is a lot of propertyed wealthy people coming from the old world to the new world right. to set up to become wealthy people again. And they made it seem like it was just this populist revival where there was all these regular people. But reality is property laws then and very much the same kind of thing. This has been going on forever. We're talking I mean, of a real, real, literal Howard Zinn style history class. Yes. You can see we've been going back to the old world to find the way that they've been doing this to the rights of kings. Doesn't make it right. What we've done is we've created this mythology and we're going to get into other episodes here where we're going to go to the guys at the Registry of Deeds that are going to take you to a whole nether world of how the proof and the evidence of what's going on here. The complicit guys in the Registry of the Deeds. But there's also some heroes out there. Just yes, I understand. But bringing this full circle to you, Paris, I mean, it's like, look, there's a system that's supposed to work a specific way. As Doug talks about in Quantum of Justice, the servicers have a framing of what they're supposed to do, and they're doing just the opposite. Paris, tell me, what does the country need to understand of what's happening in the force? Stop assuming what you see is real. Yes. Just stop assuming it, because it's not real. It's not. Everything... You're assuming that the people that we are supposed to trust in society, the respectable people, are <laughs> telling you the truth. They're not telling you the truth. Not they at are all. working a machine. Everything yes. that happens, you have to understand. I used to think that it was sloppy lawyering. That's what would get me so worked up. And now I'm finding out I have a case going on right now that I'm blown away. Patrick's been following it. We have uncovered a loan mod scam inside the court. People don't understand. You have to keep standing up for yourself. You have to keep telling the truth. You have rights. If you do not stand up for your rights and know how the system works, you will lose those rights and they will run over you. You can't keep it. 
my client, she got my fact report. And that's another thing. When you go into this, you can't go into it without being completely prepared. And all the clients that I have, the ones that have really understood the fact report, understood the crimes that are happening, that actually they're tort actions in civil court. They're not crimes. We don't have the power to say that it's a crime or not. But the fact report, once we're in civil court and can show what's happened, all of the fraud, all actually the malpractice of the attorneys that are either for the debtors or the alleged creditors, once you do that, you can take all that evidence and my fact report and walk straight over to the DA's office and say, here, do something with it. I have 350 cases with patterns of crime. I consider you can tell me a particular company and I'll tell you which ones they're working with and how they're going to do everything. I see the patterns. I'm trained to do that. And that's what my fact report does is pull out those crimes. Number one thing, I want everyone listening to this, if you are in foreclosure or you even think that you're going to have to battle, you go out and you buy yourself the rules of civil procedure for whatever jurisdiction you're in. You need that. That is your Bible. Anybody can get it. Get a Black Laws Dictionary, study it, look up everything. Reading case law, you can do that, but not everyone's savvy enough to do that. And case law, I had to take classes for almost two years to learn how to interpret case law. I was doing that while I was trying to say. I, I know, and it's difficult. And I work with attorneys, and I just had one of the top constitutional attorneys in the country just lose his house. Wow. And he's livid. I can't even begin to tell you how pissed off he is. I wanted to touch base on something in filing. I can't remember exactly what you said, Paris, but it reminded me of when I filed my third amended complaint, I was under a lot of pressure in various different lawsuits at the time, and it was a crap writing. I was trying to get it in for deadline, moving a 30-day response timeline. I was playing with the court process because it wasn't written very well. And in that 30-day timeline, they didn't respond with the demure or anything. So that allowed me, by the court rules, without asking, I can write a fourth amended complaint. So now I get to a hearing for the third amended complaint. And on the day of that hearing, before the hearing, I ran across the street and I walked into the court filing office and I tried to file the fourth amended complaint. Now, the person behind the desk knew who I was because I've given them 110 different filings over four years. And I tried to file it and she said, oh, you need the judge's permission. I said, no, according to code such and such and yada, yada, blah, blah, I do not because they didn't respond with any sort of demure or response at all. So I can file this without the judge's knowing or permission. And she said, I can't accept that. Okay. So now I go back across the street for my hearing. I walk in and the judge says, okay, the courtroom was filled with people. And the judge says, okay, are you ready, Mr. Boggs, to argue the complaint? And Wells Fargo's attorneys said, well, hold on, your honor. Are we arguing the third amended complaint or the fourth amended complaint. I didn't file anything. (laughs) I went across the street. That tells me that someone in the court office is working for Wells Fargo's attorneys, right? There's no other way. And so I said, well, geez, that's interesting out loud. And the judge says, well, I'm aware of a third amended complaint, but not a fourth amended complaint. And I told him, I said, I just walked across the street to file this, Your Honor. I didn't file it. I was unable to file it because your clerk would not accept it, saying I needed your permission. How do they know about this? And you could hear a pin drop in the courtroom. Wow. One of the primary reasons why our organization has been putting forward this podcast and such is because we want to get average Jane and Joe Q public angry enough to actually stop sucking down infotainment and clicks and likes on nonsense out there and really focus their attention on something as diabolical and important and here and now as this. And I want to show we had a gold medalist once again who had some access to different people and has a team fighting for her. We have you, who was a developer who has gone through great pains to learn all these tricks of the trade and to do all this research. And we have Paris here who had a background in it and took two years of classes to learn how to do this. 
And at the same time, go get yourself uh, rules for civil discourse <laughs> in the courtroom. I want you to think about how insane that is. You guys are such exceptions. If you have been listening to these podcasts and are not moved to action, if you can't distract yourself from worrying about Trump's tiny hands, if you can't focus your attention on something this important, then we are going to be in a world hurt. And it may just be your mother, your daughter. It may just be you that goes through this next. This is important. It should not be swept under the rug. It was never dealt with. No. And it's still not dealt with. No. And we got to deal with it. We need Ferdinand Pecora back from the dead. Right. And that's what this is. First of all, I want to say thank you to both for your friendship, your professional consultation to me over the years. You guys are the gold standard. I cherish you both. Steve, my team and I have gone to the ends of the universe and back to understand the largest criminal conspiracy and cover-up and ongoing criminal conspiracy and cover-up in history. Okay. People will be like, okay, look, slavery, Holocaust, this. I mean, there's a lot of horrible things in history, right? This is our freaking situation that we got to get a hold of. Why? Because everything's a myth. If the courts aren't functioning the way the courts are supposed to function, to be able to allow this to happen, what are we? Exactly. Right? And so I've got to turn this back, and I'm going to give you both a chance to give final comments. But Doug, I want to just toss it to you because, again, I was so amazed at all of these things that you had to balance to be able to go deep dive. Because, Steve, to get deep dive on this stuff, to understand all the procedure that he understands, all the civil stuff, all the policy, all the different prescriptions. I mean, what he talked about today was probably that much of what's in his book, which is probably that much of what he knows, right? And so, Doug, in his encapsulated version, can you express based on your personal journey, what do we have to understand and where do you want us to go? What we have to understand is that life as you know it is smoke and mirrors. That's it. Our entire country is based around a capitalistic paradigm that is crap. I use other words, but it's crap. It's what we reside in and it's not going to change tomorrow. So you still have to get up. You got to go to work. You got to do it because that's what we're in. But I'm telling you, everything that you think is real isn't. And if you try to figure out how to get through it, just by listening to these podcasts, you can see, and I can attest, it's a nightmare to try to figure out. If I were to try to encapsulate this and try to put a fix on it, everyone told me when I was writing the book that I was talking to, everyone said, you can't make this a downer. There has to be something at the end that gives people optimism. So what I put at the end is an attempt at a solution. I have a lot of information in this book, and it's also a story. In this process, I tried to get people to understand the law the way that I learned it, and you will be confused when you read it, but then I'll try to bring you back, because that's how I was, right? So I tried to put it out there on the table, but at the end, I finally realized, and this is why I did what I did at the end, because as I was closing out the book, a friend of mine called me and she said, you know, I just wanted to tell you, I've been following your blog, which is at mycourthistory.com. That's the precursor of the book. And she says, I've been following your blog for years. And I just wanted you to know that all the participants are in my lawsuit as well. And I just wanted to touch base with you. And we've become good friends now. And she's told me, she said, you've never mentioned this, but I just want you to know that the bank that initiated your loan was absolutely not licensed to do business in the state of California. And that floored me because in order to do business, anyone, if you want to open a corner store and you're an LLC or whatever business, you have to go down, you got to fill out paperwork that has to be dotted and crossed before you open your doors. Otherwise, that entity isn't born, mm. right? And so now we have a bank which has become the third largest bank in the country, making over $30 billion of mortgages, and they weren't licensed to do so. And that's not the only bank, because I started doing research. I do loan audits, securitization audits, and I got trained to do that during my legal process, because it was just so idiotic. So I learned how to do that as well. Every one of those, I started to see that some, not everyone, but I started to see that a lot of those banks 
weren't even licensed to do business. And so then I started putting those pieces together. So I thought, well, that's it. In the back of the book, I simply said, send me an email. If you are with Wells Fargo Bank, send me an email because we can put together the world's largest class action lawsuit. And I guarantee you, there will be people that read this and they will send an email. I'm not with Wells Fargo, but I'm with such and such a bank and I don't think they're legit. And I know of many banks that aren't legit to do business. So we'll just compile it together. And what's interesting about this is the secretary of state that allows that business to do business now makes that state complicit. We've got all 50 states complicit. That's what Paris told us in the con about Ohio and their yeah. spec report on Addy Polk. They weren't even licensed to do business in the state of Ohio. This is everywhere, involving everyone. And who else do I have on season two? I got the former secretary of state of Ohio telling us that they found 70,000 pieces of documentation fraud, that they went to the goddamn DOJ, sorry, and they couldn't get it over the freaking finish line because it was like, stay in your lane, we're gonna handle this. You know how they handled that, Steve? They put it under the rug and they gave $29 trillion to the bad actors so we could all go, what the fuck just happened? You know, when you're in the middle of a fraud, even the smallest person, if you profit from any of the action that's associated with that fraud, you are complicit to the full extent of the fraud. Bingo. Including the Secretary of State. Agreed. Including the Department of Justice. The largest criminal conspiracy and cover-up in history. And this is not hyperbole. No. This is our whole system gone fucking crazy. I want to give this to Paris because you've been so patient, Paris. Both of you guys have just brought the wood on this. Give us some closing thoughts, Paris. It's not just the banks that are not licensed or not actual corporations. It's everybody in between. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody yeah. and everybody that has anything to do with the mortgage or lending industry has criminal activity going on in your chain. Lean ownership. And that's another thing I wanted to make sure that people understand. You are not battling the chain of title. The title never left your name. Exactly. You're battling the chain of lean ownership. So when the creditor, alleged creditor, who now we know are owners of derivatives and derivative ownership does not give you foreclosing rights. Right. So people need to understand that. So when you're talking about standing, you're a derivative. You don't have foreclosing rights. So let's talk about you just being a debt collector, first of all. Which brings you into consumer law. Yeah, I could talk for hours, I promise you, with all the stuff that I have. But what you have to look at when you're looking at your documents, what I have found is recontrust is one of the ones that pop into my head. If you look at recontrust, and again, I've investigated over 350 of these cases, recontrust will be a capital R, all lowercase, or it'll be a capital R and a capital T. You have to check the addresses. The case that I'm working on right now, on the last assignment, and there's statutory trust, which statutory trusts don't have to report to the SEC so they can keep all of their criminal activity hidden. But no one ever looks at the addresses. How can the assignee and the assignor both have the same address? So when I look up the address, I come to find out it's a foreign investment company. And what I want to make sure that people understand, and maybe I'll get a chance to come on and talk to you guys again, about state actors. I work in bankruptcy primarily. I want the question answered. Why is the Department of Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, paying for a motion to lift the stay from all creditors? Why? Do they own it? Because they're not the ones that should be paying it. So that's what I'm chasing down now. Okay, now I want to find out, are the servicers and the foreclosing mills, are they the ones getting the money from the Treasury? Are they being paid to defend the Treasury? This is stuff I have fact about. I'm not joking. And I saw some news the other day that the Fed, this private bank, it's not a federal bank, it's a private bank, these private individuals, but the Fed has been buying up, they have as much as 30% of all the mortgages in the United States. The Fed, the Federal Reserve. Not the GSEs, the Fed. The U.S. Treasury is the number one preferred stockholder in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, what I'm beginning to find out in the cases that I'm working on, seems to be some sort of conduit for the treasury to make money as a stockholder. But there's a case, Collins versus Mnuchin in the U.S. Treasury, where the banks are pissed 
<laughs> because they were the common stockholders in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And all of a sudden now they're zeroed out. So who makes all the money when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac make all their money? And there was an article and I sent it to you, Patrick, where Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, oh my gosh, now they have all this money because they're illegally foreclosing. The business model is set up. You can make more money as a company foreclosing than you can lending. So let's get all the lenders out there and then just swoop up. And I'm telling you, the money that is being made on foreclosures, illegal foreclosures. What people need to understand when you start getting foreclosed on, and this was, I think I can speak for us all through the experience, but there comes a point where you have to understand that it's not your fault. Yes. It isn't something that you did wrong. You are part of a quagmire in a pile of systemic process that is just shit. It isn't your fault. That doesn't help you get anywhere towards the finish line, but it helps you survive. It helps you see that all of the work that you do to try to keep your head above water isn't something that you did wrong. Everyone needs to know that. That's damn right. I'd like to quickly just say something. I had a conversation with a homeowner. I've had two homeowners commit suicide. I came close. After this. And I had a conversation with a homeowner Friday. And I've heard so many stories. And Doug, I'm very sorry that you've gone through that. And you have been a victim of abuse. And people need to understand that mm -hmm. this is abuse at the highest level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gaslighting is one of the biggest tools that our government and the media are using against you. There's a reason why we have all of these crazy crises back to back to back to back. Because as yeah. long as you stay in a frenzy, I'm a warrior of domestic violence. So I'm speaking to you as a former victim. I know what it's like and how it feels. And it wasn't just at the hands of my abuser. I've also been a victim of abuse from the court system in several different ways. They want to keep you confused. They want to keep you second guessing your own sanity. They have to do that. That's the only way that they're going to win. And it's hard, Doug, and I'm so sorry that you went through that, but you have to pull yourself out of that yeah. and start standing up and come talk to me. People, you have a problem, come talk to me. Patrick, <laughs> I'm sure has some links. I'll put up some links as well. I know what you're going through. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll make sure that everybody gets I've got some other guys that we got to get on, but guys, I want to thank you again for everything that you've done. We'll put the links on to your book, Quantum of Justice, Doug, and then of course, make everybody aware of your fact report. So hopefully we can reach millions and millions of people. But the whole purpose of this energy right now, guys, is to freaking finally break through this dome of fucking deception yeah. so that we can all connect because there was 16 million filed foreclosures by 2012. There's got to be at least 30 to 40 to 50 million of us out there that if 10% of us got hit to this game, we're forced to be reckoned with. So yeah. thank yeah. you guys. Let me add one piece of technocratic thing to close us out because it's a super important thing that I want folks to remember. As we look at the Federal Reserve, remember this, the Federal Reserve is the United States Central Bank. It is their bank. It's a creature of Congress and Congress has control over it. It chooses yeah. not to because like every one of these other state agencies, when you see capture occurring, when you see industry capturing the actual entity that's supposed to be serving the public good, by pushing it off and just saying, oh, it's private, it doesn't help us because what has happened is it allows Congress once again to go, I don't know what to do about that bullshit. They're liars. The Federal Reserve Act is 100% in their court. Just right. like Blast-Steagall, they right. have complete control and they have abdicated their responsibility. I want to be crystal clear. This is one of the most important things that I am fighting for in this is the Federal Reserve is a part of our government. All those people that are hired, the revolving door that you see with all the lobbyists, the Robert Rubens, that is a form of capture that is facilitating yeah. this criminal syndicate right in front of your face. And it is our government. I want to be clear about that. So let me ask you something then. So I wanted to find a little nibble of something that everyone could be finished with my book and not be depressed. So I'm like, okay, go down this path and we'll file the world's largest class action lawsuit against who? Against itself. We would be filing a class action lawsuit against the system itself. 
Do you think that'll ever happen? Ah! It needs to. In fact, let me say this. I think that us in the streets, in civil disobedience, blocking traffic, eliminating their ability to ignore this anymore is the first and foremost most important thing that we can do. And I put this out to my other alternative media friends that do the work that we're doing, have large subscribers. I'm asking you to just for five minutes, put away the likes and clicks and the funny jokes and focus heavily on this because this is serving every one of the constituents that click like on your videos. I'm asking you focus on this shit. Don't punt it down the road. This is the underbelly of this sick, perverse system we're living in. And we're asking you to start focusing on it as well. The only way we're going to pierce the veil, man, is if we come together and we blow this up because this system of deception and collusion and the fog of war, as it were, is insanely sophisticated. We're dealing with some of the smartest, most diabolical, clever people that get paid a lot of money to run circles around us. But as you can see from everybody who's appeared, we're not a bunch of suckers, and I know we can galvanize, man. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Doug, for everything. When you're calling people out to keep us going and to promote what we're all doing, do it face-to-face, -face because I have noticed on Facebook especially, I get shadow banned. If I try sharing your stuff or Patrick's stuff, even Doug's stuff, I get shadow banned because I'll ask my friends privately. I said, do you see those posts? Because I play with it a lot. I do a lot of jokes just to see how many clicks and stuff. And then when I start going in real serious, I'm not getting anybody. And they said, oh, we didn't even see it. So yep. get out there. I tell everyone, I carry a pen and paper. We start talking about something. I said, hey, by the way, have you seen the con? www.thecon.tv. Ask Patrick. I do it all the time. And I send it back to him. People calling or sending texts wanting to buy my home because I'm in foreclosure. Oh, here, let me tell you something. Let me tell you why you're a part of the problem. Why don't you watch the con? Go to the real progressives, the new untouchables. I've showed Patrick. I do it all the time. So you have to do it face to face because social media. They've shut us down. They're not letting us yeah. out there. And by the way, Nancy Abraham and Lisa Heller, if you guys are watching from HBO and you're going to hide the fact that all of the African-American community and other people throughout the United States have been victimized by this situation, I hope you consider what you're hiding from the public. And the elderly, I can't tell you how many elderly clients I have that are in their 70s have gone through all of their stuff and they're done. And they're like, I don't want to be out on the street. I have one right now and I can't even find her an attorney. I'm not an attorney. I can't do that for her. And it's frustrating. She's like, Paris, what am I going to do? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm doing everything I can. So Steve and Patrick and the whole new Untouchables folks, we're out of here. Thank you so much for riding with us. The New Untouchables is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Roseanne Rabiola Miele and promotional artwork by Christina of Paradigms and Revolutions Design Group. The New Untouchables is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to The New Untouchables, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.